Welcome to the Ethical Consumer Podcast. I'm your host, Julia Abbott. Join me for weekly chats with food and beverage brands because caring about the process behind your food should be just as important as enjoying it. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Ethical Consumer Podcast. I'm your host, Julia, and joining me today is our guest, Julia, founder of Miyakota, a sustainable and ethical clothing company based out of New York. And I am actually wearing it right now. I am not an influencer. I, I'm not that. I'm not that person. But I do happen to love all of the clothes that she has designed and produced. And I'm excited to have you on. Yay! Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Most definitely. And we're not going to forget our names. So, Julia, your last name is Aaron's. My last name is Abbott. So we even have the same in- initials, actually. Julia A. Julia A. There we go. Now, you started this company, Miyakota, with your sister, too. So you are technically a co-founder of Miyakota. Yes, that's correct. Laura doesn't really participate in the day-to-day, sure. but she's more of like the, hey, family, I really want to start a brand. I'm straight out of college, and I don't know <laughs> how I'm going to do this. And she was all about supporting me, giving me money to start it, and Whenever I have like a question or need to bounce some ideas off someone, she's always open to listening and bouncing ideas and brainstorming. And she loves the creative process. And she's also an ethical and sustainable consumer. So she's, it's like field research. I can just be like, hey, is this something you want? Does this sound good to you? And I mean, it's the same with me. So we can be like, yeah, that sounds good. I love it. That's awesome. And it, it, it keeps it kind of in the family, too. Now, does she live in New York with you as well, or does she live in a different part of the U.S.? She's moved to Boston. Well, now she's actually outside of Boston. Since okay. When I first started Miyakota, she was we were both living in New York, and now she lives in Massachusetts. But she's been spending lots of time in New York because of the um, pandemic. Sure, definitely. That has to be nice to have her around a little bit more frequently, maybe. Oh, after. amazing. Oh. I love it. So good. Now, what is, I'm going to ask you two questions because we do usually have food and beverage founder guests or people that work in the food and beverage industry on this podcast, but I like to delve out into other types of sustainability because, I mean, to, to consider that the food and beverage industry is the only thing that we need to be paying attention to would just completely exclude so many other industries and areas where sustainability and ethical consumerism, if that is possible to exist, um, would need to be noted, noted and cared about. So what is your favorite food or beverage? And then what is your favorite piece of clothing? Okay. Um, well, my favorite beverage is here. It's Coastal Craft Kombucha. Ooh. It's a local to me, Long Island, woman-owned, craft brewed. Long Island local, vegan, recycle the can, never shake, keep refrigerated, la, la, la. (laughs) I get them at my farmer's market that I walk to. So, I mean, like, talk about sustainable. And they're local to me, and they're really awesome. And their kombucha is so good. Like, people who don't even like kombucha like their kombucha. Mm. And then... I don't know. I, I have to say my favorite clothing is Miyakota. Well, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite my piece? My favorite piece. My favorite piece would have to be either, oh gosh, can I give you top three? Oh, of course you can. Okay, slouchy pants, high-waisted joggers, and Brahmi. Love it. Yes, I am wearing the Brahmi right now in the maroon color from last year. 
And then I do have two pairs of the joggers, and I lived in them. I would still live in them if it were not 96 degrees in Iowa right now. So they, they've been retired for the summer. 96 in New York, New York, but... <laughs> and you're, you're still rocking them. I love it. <laughs> I wore bike shorts to take my dog for a walk, but when I came back in, our apartment gets... I mean, not to anyone else, but by my standards, it's cold, so sure. I put on joggers. <laughs> I love it. I do have a pair of bike shorts on the way, so I will have the bike shorts for summer. I will be able to wear Mia Quota bottoms while it's 96 degrees outside. So I'm Yay! Stoked. I hope you love them. Mm, I'm sure I will. The fabric, guys, the fabric, not to do a commercial, but like it is the softest, most breathable, comfy fabric, like every single piece I have absolutely loved. And part of that is because you only use plant-based materials with just a touch of spandex for comfy stretch. And that is one of Mia Coda's pillars of being sustainable and being ethical in manufacturing and consumption. Now, when you set out to create a clothing company, did you start with the idea of sustainable fibers or did you kind of work your way in there? It was an interesting progression. So the reason, one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to start a company was because I wanted to have vegan options, and I found wool and silk being mixed into everything. Um, what happened was, is after I graduated from college, my parents took me to London and Paris for my graduation, which was incredible. And they said, while you're here, you can pick one piece of clothing to buy, like a nice designer piece of clothing. And I couldn't find anything. I mean, like everything was and I, then I just my parents were always like no polyester like polyester is like the devil's fabric which I never really understood but um now obviously I do but so I was looking and everything was polyester silk wool blah 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 and I was like I want a vegan clothing company because everyone who's like on the same path as I am is gonna want this too and then I really started doing some more research and I was like First, I was obviously going to produce in the USA just because as a small brand, it's easier. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's the pros to this? And I found out all the ethical and everything that goes along with that. And I was like, why in the world would I produce in a sweatshop that's so counterintuitive to everything I want to do with my life? And then at the same time, I was trying to eat more organic and local and plant-based, blah, 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 food. And I was like, if I want all of this in my food, why, besides benefiting me, like how is this benefiting the planet and why should I do also do this with my clothing? So it's kind of like a weird, like if you're going to do it, you might just do it well, do it all right. Like there's no like half in like, oh, this is a vegan ethically made, but we use polyester unless like you're a swimwear brand and you're using like recycled polyester for swim because you kind of need that. But, um, I love it. That's a wonderful story. So did you graduate from design school? Did you do fashion design or fashion merchandising, something of that nature? Yeah, I did fashion design. I went to Parsons and in my senior year, I specialized in knitwear, which is funny because I was actually really big into crocheting and my first job in the fashion industry was crocheting runway pieces for Zach Posen. Holy cow. Um, And then I did accessories and my senior year, my... Uh, thesis was knitwear, like crochet and knit and machine knit and also cut and sew knit. And everything I make for me, Coda is a cut and sew knit. Hmm. I just think it's so much more comfy and like, I don't know, everything I have that's like a woven, like stiff fabric 
even like I love linen, but even that, like when you first put it on, it's not immediately comfy. You kind of have to break it in a little bit. And I like that immediate gratification. Yes, I agree. I have a pair of um, hemp pants from Prana and I love them, but I didn't love them for like the first two years that I owned them. It was not, it wasn't comfortable. It was kind of crunchy. Like you said, it's, it's like the linen woven. It, it, eventually it's your favorite piece, but right off the bat, yeah, it takes some breaking in, which is not nearly as fun. Definitely. I mean, it's worth it. Like it's slow gratification. And like, I find linen and hemp and fibers like that are amazing after you've washed them a few times and you've worn them and you've broke them in and you stretch out the fiber a little bit, but I want to be able to like get something out of the pack, just throw it on and be like, wow, I'm so comfy. Yes. Agreed. So did you want to be a designer for the majority of your childhood or was this something you happened upon a little later? I was always that child who was like, they'd be like, oh, do you want to play hide and seek? Do you want to play tag? Do you want to play like any games? Do you want to play a board game? And I'd be like, what's the point? There's nothing that you get out of it. <laughs> I want. <laughs> I was like the strangest child. I love it. I was like, I arts and crafts because at the end I'll have something to show for yes. it. Yes. And then I feel like how many paintings am I, or like pictures am I going to hang around my mother's house that are hideous? Like, I want to do something that I can use. Sure. Like, I want it to be functional. So I want it to be art, but I want it to be functional, and I want it to have a purpose. And then I started, um, my grandmother taught me how to knit mm-hmm. and how to spin wool, which as a vegan, I don't do anymore. Sure. But I used to spin wool. She would dye it with plant-based dyes, and we'd do all sorts of things. She was really cool. Um, so I had a spinning wheel when I was, like, seven years old. I love um, that. <laughs> we used to bead and we would go to like local bead stores and bead and gem and crystal expos and buy like all the stuff. And she, I mean, she made amazing jewelry. I made mediocre jewelry, but ever since then I wanted to make stuff that you could wear and that has like purpose. And so I guess, yeah, it's kind of fun. I mean, there are other jobs. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a vet. I wanted to be, when I was in first grade, I made like a cube that said like, my name's Julia, this is what I want to be, and it said mm-hmm. artist, so I kind of always vet helping animals, astronaut doesn't fit in anywhere, <laughs> artist, designer, I don't know. Unless you wanted to design, like, I don't know, are, are spacesuits vegan and of sustainable material? I'm kind of guessing perhaps not, but maybe there's, maybe there's a niche further down is Miyakota. Ooh, tell, tell us about the name because there's, hey, there's your astronaut reference. Power of the Moon. There you go. There you Miyakota go. Miyakota meets Power of the Moon for anyone who's like not getting our inside joke here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm all about it. Um totally i get the the inspiration the astronaut theme turned into the inspiration for the name for miyakota there we go there we go there we go oh too fun now when you were in school was sustainable production or sustainable um manufacturing well, i guess production and manufacturing uh textiles pardon me so we have the textile process making sustainable fabrics and then also making the garments were those talked about much in the program that you went through or was that kind of dig deeper on your own? Right now, Parsons has, I wish I was back in college now because yeah. it has so many really cool sustainable initiatives, like mm. sustainable classes, sustainably focused, everything. And there were people doing it. I think there, like there were different sections for your senior thesis. Each class had about 16 to 18 kids in it. It was a really small school and a really small program, but you could choose, like, do you want to be a knitwear focus? Do you want to be 
a children's wear focus. You want, I, I don't even, what else was there? Children's wear, knitwear, not knitwear, like regular um, evening wear, bridal, stuff like that. So I was in the knitwear focus, and I think there might have been a sustainability focus one, but honestly, like, when I was first going into my senior year, it wasn't something I thought about. So I probably was like, what's that? Okay, next. Sure. <laughs> I'm thinking now. But when I went into working on my senior thesis, my senior thesis actually fueled me a coda and pieces like slouchy pants were part of my senior thesis. Um, so that was my first ever Mia Coda piece. But um, I actually made my entire senior thesis organic, sustainable, ethical, all that stuff. And the first factory I ever worked with for Mia Coda, I had to do some of the pieces for my senior thesis. You have to actually, for your senior thesis, you have to make, I think it was like 80 or 90% of it, but like people who are doing evening wear, they could send out their beading. And there's this one pair of pants that I was working on that just like, I could not sew it. I don't know why they just kept coming out horrible. So they told me I could give it to a factory to make them for me. Nice. Um, but I actually, when the first day of senior year, we all had to come in with our inspiration books and explain what we're doing for our thesis. And I was like, everything's going to be sustainably done, organic cotton, blah, blah, blah. And everyone looked at me like I was a weirdo. I was already that girl, like bringing my yoga mat to class, yes. wearing yoga clothes, and then drinking my green smoothie. And everyone was like, you paid how much money for that green gook? <laughs> I was a weirdo. I mean, which is funny because coming from fashion school, if you're wearing like 10 inch heels and like a leopard print head to toe big hat, you're not weird. You're drinking that green smoothie. You're a weirdo. Sure. Oh, totally. It's a totally different world. I would imagine I would I would equate myself to have been one of the weirdos as well. And it, <laughs> in, in, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, definitely a smaller town is Parsons in New York City. Yes, it's in New York. Okay, City. so like that's where Project Runway is filmed. Really? Did not know this. Oh, cool. I did. I did. I watched that show religiously when I, when was that out? It might've been college. I think it might've been college, maybe a little bit of high school too, but oh, I did love that. When I was in high school, I watched it like religiously. And by the time I got to Parsons and saw what havoc having this filming crew in our space was, I was like, I hate this show. Oh no. (laughs) It's a great show. And Tim Gunn, who is on Project Runway, mm-hmm. used to be the head of the program. But obviously, with Project Runway, we had a new head by the time I was in school. Sure, sure. That's fair. So you would say that at Parsons and perhaps at other colleges as well, or is, is that an independent design school? Or do you consider that to be a, like, it's not a state university. Is that correct? No, it's not. It's okay. part of a bigger school. It's part of the new school, which has like Eugene Lang and Jazz Studies and like a bunch of other schools. But Parsons is the design school in the new school. Okay, I hear you. Would you say that it's starting to become more common for schools to teach aspects of sustainability? Or would you say Parsons is kind of on the cutting edge with that? I think more schools are. I think it's really important. And I think that they're realizing it. And I think that for new designers to get jobs they really have to have some sort of like knowledge of sustainability and of all of that so i i'm not i haven't kept up with it but i know the three big schools i wanted to go to were pratt fit and parsons and they're all in new york city and i think they're all i don't know if it's a new york thing or a design school thing or like an art thing 
but I think they're all stepping up their game in terms of sustainability. Sure. Awesome. Now we've thrown that word around a lot, the word sustainability. And it's one, I mean, I think there are, there's, there's one definition for most, but there's also like the sustainability means something to each person. What does sustainability mean to you? I think the biggest thing sustainability means, how can I say this without using words sustainable? Right. It's something that <laughs> is something that's sustainable. I'm kidding. Um, sustainability is something that can be done long term without, for me, hurting people, the planet, and animals. Mm-hmm. Because if you're hurting part of that trifecta, it can't sustain itself. It can't keep going. And especially with our planet as like the main focus. And its inhabitants, it's just, if you're hurting our resources, we can't keep going. There's sure. just no way. So for me, sustainability, especially with my company and when I'm making decisions, it's always, is this something that I could still be doing in so many years and without hurting people, animals, and the planet? Mm-hmm. Got you. So when you when you're going through your selection process, when was, when was Mia Coda founded? Is this... 2013. 2013. Okay. I wanted to say I did look up that beforehand and then I forgot to write it down. So we're we're coming up on the 10-year mark in just two short years here, which will be super exciting. Um, oh, my God. I, oopsies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are some of the things that you look for in sourcing your fabric? Um, so I work with two main suppliers and it's really hard to find suppliers that are also ethically minded where they're actually paying their workers a fair wage. Like there are so many companies that make like organic cotton. I mean, think about it. H&M has an organic cotton line. Does that mean it's ethical? Like a hundred percent. No. If anyone listens to this podcast and wants to get a message from me, fast fashion quote, sustainable lines are not sustainable because it's fast fashion and fast fashion will never be sustainable because it is fast. (laughs) Um, But so there are tons of companies that do that. So for me working, I work with two suppliers that I found and have found their fabrics to be high quality and they are ethically minded and sustainably focused. And I'd love to see more options and I keep seeing more and more options. For for example, the bike shorts are the same fabric as our active brownie material and our high-waisted leggings. And for years, people have been asking me, make it in more colors, make it in more colors. I'm like, I would if I could, but I can't. Like, it only comes in black. Um, So I kept saying to the fabric supplier, like, I will be your first customer if you make this in more colors. And they asked me what color I want to see. I was like, green. (laughs) And uh, they chose the gray color. And the blue gray color it's not really gray it's more like a blue gray but I like hopped all over that and everyone is so pumped to see that I have more colors but it's definitely it's it's been years of asking so there's definitely like getting colors in sustainable materials is really difficult um a lot of the times they'll have like undyed material and you can get it dyed yourself I did that once it's extremely expensive and no one wants to pay for it Ooh, sure that would be I, I you really limited as far as what suppliers are offering. Like you said, you have two companies that you work with and you've been asking for more colors, asking for more colors, but they just had black. You've really only had the single option. 
and what you did in asking more, perhaps now they will start to come out with even more colors as long as they know that you are able to buy them. And then perhaps other companies will want to incorporate more colors and more sustainable fabrics too. So you've kind of started this chain of improving not only the supply chain, another chain, but just options for other companies out there too, not just Miyakota. It takes someone asking and wanting that enough for the supplier to warrant thinking that, hey, maybe we should actually do this or make it possible for them financially to do it. And I totally hope, I mean, I bought a bunch of it and Mm -hmm. I've planned more production for 2022 with these fabrics. So I've already pre-ordered like another like bunch of yards. But I sent them an email. I was like, I hope you're getting positive feedback from everyone else because my customers are really happy. Yeah, definitely. Now, what do, what does an order look like for you then? So do you do you contact your supplier and say, I would like to make X number of pieces. It takes about this much square footage to make a garment. Are you willing to make this for me? Or do you just kind of have to go by what they have available you said you ordered you already ordered a significant amount of fabric already will they have that fabric on hand when you run out or is that a risk that you run when it's kind of a specific almost maybe a trial fabric well that's why I did it now I'm not going to be making this until I'm having them ship it the first week of January and I let them know the yards I want now Mm -hmm. so that they just made a bunch of yards I don't know how many they made but um usually when I talk to my fabric mills they bring in like Maybe a thousand or two thousand yards of fabric. I typically order between a hundred and three hundred yards of any given color because we do small batches, so sure. it's not like a huge amount. It's huge from oh, where to I me started. That seems huge like, still, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's definitely really small. Like that's why I feel bad, and like I don't have huge power to like make them make the things I want because I'm not making huge batches. I'm not like a huge department store. I don't wholesale, so like there's a. Uh, there's a there's not that pull for me like oh we need that order like we need to get me a quota's order but um so what I do is like I'm already working I have all my production planned through January 2022 and right now I'm starting to work on style for spring you saw on my Instagram I was asking all these questions and I have some ideas of what I want to make the problem is is I'm always like oh I'll start working on samples la 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 and somehow it's like two months away from when I need to be putting this stuff out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have anything ready. So typically the fashion industry works in advance. So I've pre-ordered all my fabric through January. And in the next couple of months, I'll start working on my fabric. So what that looks like is getting samples made. Then I send the pattern to a company that grades them, which means makes them into different sizes. Mm. Um, If I haven't already tested this style or a style that the pattern was based on, on plus size, I get a plus size sample made, which is my new thing because we've expanded our size range. So it's a big deal for us. So I then test the, usually a 4X and then I grade down for the 3X just to make sure it fits our biggest size that we offer. And then I have them tell me how much yardage each garment makes. Then I um, order, I place a pre-order for the fabric. And then when the fabric ships, it goes to my factory. I give them the marker, which are the graded sizes of the patterns, all in like this big, like huge piece of paper. 
and the fabric goes to them and I give them the sample and the trims and the tags and all that and the packing materials and they make everything for me. Oh my goodness. So what you're telling me is there's a lot of math involved and everybody has to be on board at the same time, but then there's still like a hierarchy of figuring things out from the top down. The math is the hardest part for me. I was oh. really good at math until I wasn't and I, <laughs> I hated math so much. I haven't taken a math class since I was 16 and I'm turning 31 next week. <laughs> How did you get away with that? I had to take a math. Well, okay, so you went to design school and I went to a state yeah. school. So I, I had to take math and you didn't have to take math. Yeah, no, I had to take English, <laughs> which was fine because in high school I thought it would be fun to take like advanced placement college English classes. So I actually placed out of most of them because I already had college credits because I was a nerd. Yes. Um, but I had to take, like, design history and these, like, we had to take a few, like, university classes. But one of mine was, like, New York, the dynamic metropolis. Like, weird stuff. Nothing Ooh. normal. No math. Oh, my goodness. I would have been right with you with the advanced placement English classes. But, yeah, no, not not in math. No, thank you. That Definitely not. not. Jam. <laughs> not my thing. <laughs> so, aside from the math and then just making sure you have enough fabric for the sizes for how much how much fabric it takes to make every single size and enough to run a full production line um what are some other challenges that you you find like in the past year of course we've been in a pandemic uh, and new york was really at the heart of that do you find supply and demand snags frequently or has just the past year been an entire exception just in how awful it must have been, I would assume, with oh my supply God. and demand, and everybody, everybody involved on this planet. Last year was absolutely crazy. Our factory is making PPE for three months after I had shipped all the fabrics to them, and they had cut everything to make my spring-summer pieces. So for three months, I had nothing new, which is good in terms of sustainability, but I was pulled out of almost everything. And I was like, dude, I got, I got to do something. So I was trying to be really inventive with like ways to like make stuff. And I like was finding fabric in my office, which was, I was living in my mom's house at the time. So it was great because it was in my base, in her basement. That's where I work out of her house, which is such a blessing. Um, so every time I go to work, I get to see my cat and cats and dogs. Um, so we, uh, I was trying to be really inventive with like, I was making headbands and face cloths and scrunchies and everything out of her basement and it was just a very difficult time and everyone kept asking when I was going to have new stuff and I don't think a lot of the world wasn't as bad as New York was at that time so I was like I like can't even go to a supermarket without like a hazmat suit <laughs> like it was really bad um I didn't leave my house for like 52 days just because I was so freaked out so like it was just crazy um but then after that, my factory said to me, I think there's going to be a huge fabric shortage with how many people got backed up. Order all your fabric now. And I'm glad I listened to him and I ordered all my fabric so I wouldn't have to deal with any sorts of shortages. But fabric shortages are like, especially like with fast, uh, suppliers or having fabric on hand for when you need them. I've run into so many roadblocks like for the French Terry joggers, I was originally going to make them in fleece. And I placed the order and they wrote back to, and I think I was placing the order in like August and I wanted to put them out in like 
the end of September, maybe middle of October, latest November. And they said, this fabric will be back in February. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what am I getting? And I sampled everything in the fleece and I loved the fleece. It actually was a blessing in disguise. And that's why I always roll with the punches and just trust that the earth is leading me in the path I need to be because so many of our customers are in California and what mm. are they going to do with a fleece jogger? Sure. Well, and the, the Terry so ones fun. are so, they're warm, but they're yeah. light at the same time. Like you're wearing yours right now. I am not wearing mine right now, but they're, they're so insulated and warm, but also so breathable that it's not, I feel like fleece sometimes, though that would be magical in the Iowa winter and New York winter, fleece sometimes, <laughs> though it's so soft and fuzzy, if you're, it, it can get too warm really fast. Yeah. Maybe that's just me. It's but. funny because I made fleece sweatshirts instead and I changed the colors that mm. I was going to use because they were like, we have enough to ship for like this much yardage, but I had like style on style on style. One of the ways that I, one of our sustainable decisions is to pick like the fabric you want to use and use it for multiple styles sure. because then you eliminate waste and you can order more of one thing instead of like just picking and choosing so i was like okay so i guess i'll do the sweatshirt and fleece and it was actually so hard to sell mm, oh no so I, was like, I mean i sold out of them eventually uh-huh. but like it it was a tricky sell and a lot of it's funny because to this day i get so many requests for fleece and i'm like never again i tried I tried. It didn't work out. The earth was trying to be like, no, Julia, don't do that. <laughs> but it is, it is, I think I actually sold during COVID when I was like, how in the world am I going to make any money? I sold all the samples from our um, office. Mm-hmm. I just, every time you do a, well, when you do photo shoots or when like you lend clothing to someone for a photo shoot or when you're doing production or anything that comes back to wad, I would just throw it on a garment rack and start to look like, so messy mm. and it just looked horrible and I like organized all of it I was like wow there's a lot here and I sold all of it for nice. like really super discounted prices so I think someone out there I don't remember who got the, the fleece jogger so I hope they're enjoying them because they're one of a kind there you go just just so just one you just had a single sample mocked up or a I had couple a single sample single sample man oh goodness now when you're you're talking about these the photo shoots and having models wear them and having like rented or borrowed for a photo shoot. Um, usually what would you, what would you end up doing or what, what did you do? You just told me what would end up happening to those garments? Cause they're not usually sold or maybe they're sold as seconds or pre-worn or pre-loved, but where, where does so much of our clothing end up? So for me, what I do now, especially with COVID and like, I'm not sanitizing those. I'm not like, it's a lot, especially with having multiple size models Mm -hmm. and shooting multiple garments. Now what I do is I give the clothing to the models and they're always so excited. You'd be shocked. No one gives clothing to models. You think like, oh, you get to wear all this beautiful clothes. Don't you have so much beautiful clothes? There are like no companies. Every time I tell the models, like, oh, you can keep that. They're like, oh, I can keep that? Like, as if I just told them they won the lotto. It's wow. so cute. <laughs> I just thought that was a thing. I just assumed that once you've modeled that, that you, that, I don't know, maybe that was wishful thinking yeah, no, on my part. But like, oh. <laughs> totally wishful. I think it's wishful for the models, too, but they get so excited. And, like, it's just fun. Um, but I think for the past, like, two years, I've given all the clothes. Like, it used to be that I had to then take those. What I used to do is I would have the models shoot the 
clothing and then I would send the clothing to another photographer who would take like the flat images which you see on our main home screen where there's a picture of the clothing without any body in it. But what I do now is I send a production piece to the photographer to take those samples or I have the photographer take them on set before. But it's actually really difficult because some pieces we do that but like some pieces require a lot of styling and all specific things that I've tried to do myself and you need to be like a mastered photographer to do. Sure. Um, but so that's why I didn't give the clothing to the models because I needed it to get photographed again. And I ended up putting all that clothing on a rack and selling it as pre-loved. Mm-hmm. But I have a feeling, I don't know specifically, but I have a feeling a lot of stuff just ends up in landfill and in the trash. Sure. That Unfortunately, I would... with... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Um, one of the things that really turned me off to the traditional fashion industry is one of the companies I worked for, um, they set up an entire runway show. They had all the clothing made. The designer came and looked at it, said, no, this is trash. And that's exactly what they did with it. They threw it all in the trash. And I felt so upset. I mean, I, this was like before I was into yoga and veganism and sustainability or anything. Like it was just like literally like a fashion obsessed teenager and I was so distraught and it really that was one of the things that got me thinking about my sustainability journey I was like why does this bother me so much so wasteful sure well definitely I you would hope I mean here's my wishful thinking again you would hope that those pieces would pieces would find alternative homes or maybe they'd get stored and there's going to be a fashion museum where they can go in someday and like as a time capsule sort of piece but no I suppose that's unfortunately not the case. And I, I don't remember the number, but th- there's a staggering amount of clothing that just ends up in landfills. And as so much, so much of our clothing is made from your parents' least favorite fabric, polyester, it's plastic. Essentially, we're yeah. putting more plastic in our landfills by having all of this polyester clothing and tossing it out when fast fashion is no longer in style. And it's 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 a huge problem. Miyakota is not the problem. Miyakota is solving the problem. But in general, <laughs> yes. No, I totally. You know, one of the things that I learned actually not too long ago, actually, I learned it on Instagram, is that most fast fashion, fast fashion. I can't even say it. It's like a curse word in my language. <laughs> um, fast fashion retailers. When you return something like, and I was notorious for this, like. One of my school buildings was on Fifth Avenue in New York City. So I would go to H&M and Zara and like all those places. And I would buy so much stuff without trying on, go home, try it on and return half of it. Mm-hmm. They take those returns and throw them out. Ooh. They don't even, because and I know when I get returns, like sometimes I get back a Brahmi with like deodorant on it. And I can't sell that again. Or I will have it dry cleaned and cleaned and, or whatever and use it for a photo shoot. But, like, I'll never hold that against the consumer because it's impossible to try on a brownie without getting deodorant on it. Like, I don't know sure. how I ever get returns, but, like, I have to clean and disinfect and then refold, repackage, put it away and resell it mm-hmm. so that it's just as good as you're getting a brand new piece of clothing. And it takes time. So, I mean, most fast fashion retailers don't want to be bothered. They're like, oh, this came back. And even if it looks perfect, they don't want to have to check. Sure. No, I hear you. That with the fast fashion specifically, you're talking about like 
people that come out with a new collection every like couple weeks or every month, things that are turning turning products around, seeing something in the fashion magazine or on Fashion Week, and then somehow magically they just have a complete line. Well, not a complete line of sizes, and we'll get to that later too. A complete line. <laughs> so so they think of sizes and colors and designs like a week later, which is just not. You just can't. You you can't look at that and think that that's being done in a sustainable way. That's just not possible. Yeah, in an ethical way. Like, how in the world are you getting this turned out? No. No. Not, it, like, not with the hours that the workers have to be putting in. Not with, definitely not with how much they're paid. And, yeah. Oh, it's just messy. It's just messy. It's so crazy. And it's actually, just for comparison, I, let's say bike shorts. Let me give you an accurate. I gave my bike shorts to the factory. Mm-hmm. I just released them, what, last week? I think and so. I gave, them, I gave them to the factory three and a half months ago to make. Wow. So three and a half. So how long did your design and the size grading and things like that, like since the bike shorts are your most pe- recent piece from concept to really starting the design and the sizing and the fabric order, how long did that take? You said you were already starting to plan pieces for 2022. Um, let's see if I have it in here. Ooh. I might not have it in here. Let's see. La la la. Give me one minute. No worries. I have always, always wondered that. I think the bike shorts came out maybe two weeks ago or so because I did love that green girl. Loved that green. Oh, yeah, and the green. I love oh. that green. I, I had to, before I even put them out, I had to uh, steal them for myself. Yes, I did not jump <laughs> like, on the green fast enough. <laughs> I'll be making them again, definitely. A bike short sample. This was October 2020. Wow. Okay, so in the midst of pandemic and kind of when New York was literally starting to be able to breathe again was when the bike shorts started to come into fruition and they just released two weeks ago. We're recording this the second week of June. So October to May is what we're looking at for that time. Yeah. Fashion week comes out. And, and then you have. Bike shorts were easy. Yeah. yeah. Bike shorts were easy. They were one of the shorter pieces to do all, everything for because they're based on the high-waisted leggings. They're the same fit, mm-hmm. just cropped off. And I just wanted to make sure they weren't going to squeeze my thighs. So that sure. was all I had to like worry about yes i have thighs i appreciate them not being squeezed <laughs> i'm excited it's very uncomfortable <laughs> no one wants to have like a seam digging into your side where you're like ripping at it like no, no we're not here for that no please but no, yeah it's crazy you. like we started that in october just the design process and i had to wait for the fabric to ship like i don't know how these fast fashion people do it but it's impressive in all the worst ways. I was going to say, I kind of don't want to know or think about it because it will make me sad. But when I do think about it, it makes me want to support ethical companies even more. So, I mean, you suppose you have me that too. combination. It's like, this is awful. This is why I do it this way instead. Oh, man. Goodness gracious. So, you're the, the company that makes or the manufacturing facility that does all of your products, that is based in New York City, and you have a direct relationship with them. You are not mailing your garments to China to get made and back to the U.S., so one, you're saving on shipping and not polluting right. with more fossil fuels, but you is this one of the first companies, one of the first manufacturing companies that you started to work with, or is this a recent relationship? 
I've been working with them for, I would say, about four years. I worked with another uh, company. So the the factory I work with now is in the Bronx, Mm -hmm. um, which is great because I can park really strangely on the street and never get a ticket. (laughs) Or they have like a loading dock and I can park there. My first factory was in Manhattan. And they were great, but they were extremely expensive. Mm. Like, there was no way for me to sell anything under 100 bucks. And then when I increased, and I understand I was doing very small production rounds. So when you, people don't usually know, but when, like, everything's done in, like, an assembly line sort of way. Like, mm-hmm. this person does this, this person does this. And the cutting phase is what takes a lot of time. So if you're cutting, like, 20 pieces, which is what I started with, mm-hmm. Um, it's like very expensive and very time consuming. You're using a lot of labor to produce very little. So the cost is really expensive. And then the fabric is expensive because as you order more fabric, the price goes down per yard. Mm. And usually those price breaks are at like sometimes 50 yards, but usually a hundred yards, sometimes 250 yards, but more often 500 yards. Like they really want you to buy more because it's like, especially with harvesting crops and dyeing colors and stuff it's more cost effective for them to make more and that's one of the reasons that we pick one fat like we don't make like well the bike shorts are a different material but we don't make like slouch for, for our next production run we're doing wrap crop tops if you were aware yes, and slouchy pants yes. so we're doing the same color wrap crop tops as we're doing slouchy pants as opposed to picking two different colors because mm-hmm. it's not cost i try to be mindful of what's cost effective and worthwhile for the fabric supplier too and for them to meet the demand in a sustainable way sure so um what was i talking about Uh, i could just ramble on all different directions for days oh i love it Um, this is stuff that we don't get to hear or be aware of because we are buying the clothes we're not making the clothes and we don't know what goes on behind the scenes oh the the price the cost the original place that you worked with in manhattan because you had such small numbers yeah so it was extremely expensive and one of the best things about growing Miyakota, although we definitely are not a cheap brand it's i have dropped the prices so significantly since starting eight years ago mm-hmm. i think like slouchy pants are now 85 dollars, but when we started i think they were a hundred and maybe like 160 sure so that was like a huge that was like a huge deal to me um, because I wanted to be more accessible, and although ethical and sustainable fashion is inherently more expensive, mm-hmm. I want it to be as accessible as possible. Because it's, I mean, it's people have this idea that if you're paying for something like designer pieces, like if you go to like Fendi and buy something that's like, oh, it must be ethical because it's expensive. It's like, mm-hmm. no, that brand is profiting. Most of the amount of like where our money is distributed, most of it goes to fabric and labor, and then I just try to make money. Yeah, there <laughs> like, you go. And also, but that goes along with paying models and influencers and the whole nine yards. But um, so I worked with that factory in Manhattan, and I really loved them. But it was just impossible to grow Miyakota while working with them. Sure. So then I moved to another factory in Brooklyn. And I thought their quality was impeccable, but they were like kind of shady and they would increase my prices mid production round. And then like, it was just weird. So one day I just went in there and I was like, I need to do, like, I have no ability to be like, Hey, what you did was messed up. And I don't like that. And then like, 
there was also a really big language barrier as there is in many factories. So like I couldn't ask them questions about like their labor and all that stuff. And I really wanted to know more mm-hmm. and I just wasn't getting the answers. And although it was a gorgeous factory and everyone looked really happy, I wanted to be able to ask those questions. Sure. So I one day went in, I said, I have to pick up all my fabric. And I just took it all in my, I was driving like a small car, like shoved it in there, could hardly see out my windows and like drove home with uh, it all. And oh then gosh. on my mission to find a new factory, I wanted to find someone that was cost effective so we could drop our prices, but also good quality and good labor and ethics. Mm-hmm. So when I went to this factory, I, 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 there's a uh, website, Makers Row, where you can pay for a subscription as a manufacturer or a supplier or a brand. And you can find like, it's like pretty much like a resource for all different factories. And I met with so many factories. Mm-hmm. One of them that ended up being sued as a scam for like claiming to be all these things that well, they weren't, but oh. they were just like ridiculous and I like from the get go, like when you're talking to these people, you like from, you can get like that gut reaction. One of the biggest things I've learned in business is like trust that gut reaction. Sure. But when I went and I met with a bunch of factories and they had really like, they were giving me good pricing and their quality looked really great. And they were answering all the questions about uh, their workers that like made me feel happy. But when I went in to meet with this factory, the owner, Eric, it was empty. It was just Eric in the uh, factory. And I was like, it's like it's like a warehouse space in the Bronx. It's not luxurious. It's not like Instagrammable. But mm-hmm. like no one was there. It was empty. And it was 3.30. And I said, where is everybody? And he goes, they have kids. <laughs> and I was like, I love you. Oh, my gosh. It was like they like to come in early after they drop their kids at school and then they get home so they can pick them up after school. And like, yeah, they have the option to work overtime, but like I've gone there at like five o'clock and they're all saying goodbye. Some people are still working, but usually if you go there after three o'clock, it's mostly empty. And if you want to work overtime, you have the option, but by no means are you being held there. Wow. I got like emotional. That was his response. Oh. And to your, like, I mean... for that to be his response too clearly he cares and he's not he's not running a slave labor operation which very much still exists and oh oh, man you don't think it exists in the united states but they're like forever 21 does some production in california Mm. let me tell you they're not paying them above minimum wage and like eric like minimum wage just went up in new york so Mm. everyone i think maybe i can't remember COVID really threw my mind out. I don't remember if this was a year ago or two years ago. That's okay. <laughs> but Mr. Wade went up, and everyone in his factory is paid on the books. Like, he runs payroll. There's no, like, under-the-table sketchy stuff. And he, uh, which, unfortunately, a lot of, he sometimes he struggles to get people who want to work for him because they want the under-the-table stuff. But he's like, no, we are going by the books here. Sure. Um, and... Yeah, he, uh, he said to me like, "Hey, listen, I have to raise your prices because I have to pay the workers more." So like, I hope you understand. And I was like, "Oh yeah, no, totally fine, thank mm-hmm. you." But he's the best. I'm obsessed with him, and I've referred my friends who are designers to do their production there, and everyone's always thrilled with the quality, the, the ethics, the everything. And um, I tell him I'm the 
president of the Eric fan club. There you go. Oh, I love it. Oh, that's so cool yeah. to know. This is such an amazing insight because this, again, this is just something that, you know, perhaps we think about it or unfortunately we think about it for like five seconds or 10 minutes or maybe even 10 minutes and do a deep guy dive on Google. Like does slave labor still exist? What does forever 21 pay their garment makers? And then unfortunately it's really easy to be out of sight, out of mind. And I would say your maybe average consumer even still will go to the store and then you see a sale and then you get really excited because there's a sale and there's this really affordable piece and it's really cute and it's perfect for summer and then you buy it and then you get home and then you think, why was that so inexpensive? Why was it so inexpensive in comparison to more ethical brands right away before it was even on sale? Like it's the chasing of the new and the flashy and the patterns and all of that stuff. But that's we really get sucked in and it's easy to find out about how corrupt the fashion industry is and then unfortunately forget about it for a little while. And then you remember again and hopefully it gets ingrained eventually. But stories like this and hearing just even that, thinking about the place that your clothes are actually being made and having those examples is extremely eye-opening. Almost kind of like burns burns an emotion in my brain associated to thinking yeah. about that. Ugh. It's definitely a learning process. And I totally agree with you. It's one of those things where it's like the more you shop ethically and sustainably, the more it gets like put into your brain like, oh, this is the morals and values I want to align with. Because mm-hmm. don't tell anyone. I know we're recording this for the public. <laughs> but when I first started Miyakota, I was shopping at H&M and Forever 21. Sure. I didn't like understand and it wasn't until the Rana Plaza factory collapse in mm-hmm. Bangladesh that like that was like really brought into the forefront and like I was doing ethical production but I didn't really understand like the questions to ask my factories and like those factories were all good and like pra- they definitely weren't sweatshops like they were safe they were clean like no one's being held there against their will like the owners of the factories were not abusive. Mm-hmm. And like, these are like very common practices in sweatshops, especially overseas, but it still happens in the United States and in Europe and in the places that you think like, Oh, that doesn't happen there. Sure. Um, but I like, I still didn't fully understand it. And like, especially with wanting like vegan shoes, I'd be like, Oh, I'll go to forever 21. They're so cheap. They don't use leather. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. True, and but- I have, I mean, <laughs> It's funny because to this day, I have Old Navy sandals that everyone asks me, oh, my God, where did you get those? I'm like, they are like nine years old (laughs) and I got them at Old Navy. Don't judge me. But the great thing about it is that now, even if you want to buy fast fashion, you can go on places like Poshmark Mm -hmm. and like your local thrift store and all that stuff and get those fast fashion pieces in a sustainable way because there are so many people who are shopping fast fashion and just donating it sticking it up on Poshmark and or throwing it out. And like, you can buy it sustainably by buying it secondhand. So very frequently I'm like, Oh, that's cute. I want those sneakers. And I search them on Poshmark and I'm like, great. I got them. There you go. Or I'm like, Oh, they're not on Poshmark. Guess I can't have them. (laughs) And you do this a lot on the Instagram stories, mostly on the Mia Coda mood board account on Instagram. You will show your ethical outfit of the day And sometimes it's your pieces, sometimes it's your friend's pieces, and a lot of times it's Poshmarked or thrifted or I've had this forever. And it's a really great example. Like you are in the fashion industry. You are a designer. 
And you are supporting the slow fashion, not only by having your own company, but just what you wear too. It's okay that you still shopped at H&M back in the day when you started. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those things. I love that transparency too, by the way, though, because I feel like people would think that, you know, this is your platform, this is your brand, this is your match. It's like, oh, she must be absolutely perfect and she never does anything like incorrectly. Whew, y'all. <laughs> but, you know, it's when that was your exposure too. perhaps you had seen other factories in New York City as well, but working with your more sustainable, ethically produced factories and your textiles and things like that, if that's the image that you have, that's the, that's the, just the image that your brain goes to. And yeah. so and you I think of no the... Idea. I think it's also education. Mm-hmm. Like, when I first started, I was 22, I guess I was you know, 22 when I started Miyakota. I... Looking back on it now, I don't know if it's just as I age. I'm like, oh, my God, I was so young. I thought I was so old. I thought I knew everything. Um, and I was like, I'm starting this brand. I just, I made a business plan. And I was like, when I sell out of everything at full price, <laughs> I just had delusions. <laughs> um, but definitely, like, I, I really didn't know. And I think one of the things that's helped me to grow so much is that I've learned so much. And I can share that information with people. So I think even if, like, even if one of my customers is like, oh, yeah, I just got this shirt at Gap, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not judging you for that, especially, especially if you are plus size, because the options are so limited. That is why I am so thrilled to have expanded our size range this year. Yes. So, like, but even so, like, a lot of people, like, shopping ethically and sustainably 100% of the time is expensive. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I love Poshmark. And I see Miyakota pieces up on Poshmark, and I'm like, oh, yes, I love that this is being accessible to other people when they no longer want that piece. Sure. Um, and that's why, like, I've had customers say, like, hey, I bought this. I wore it a few times. Realize it doesn't fit me or, like, I don't – doesn't suit my style or I'm not reaching for it. Can you share that, like, that I want to sell this piece? Huh. And, like, so someone who maybe can't afford it can get it cheaper because I've already worn it. I'm like, totally. That's awesome. And I know there's tons of brands. Like, I think – I know that Free Label, which is based in Canada, has like a buy, sell, um, Facebook group. Mm-hmm. I personally can't handle Facebook, <laughs> but like I, I can't think either. Great. I always tell people post to Poshmark because I am happy to tell people to go to Poshmark. Mm-hmm. But like having those types of Facebook groups where you can you buy something and like you wear it once and you're like, oh, this is so not for me. You can sell it or you can trade it or you can look for, like, you can be like, hey, I got this in a medium and I really need a large. Like, does someone want to trade with me? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great way to be more sustainable and ethical. We don't have one of those places, but if you ever buy something from Miyakota and you're like, this, I wore it, I washed it, it doesn't fit me, I, I will definitely be like, hey, make a post, I'll share it and tell people to contact mm-hmm. you because I think it's a great way to, like, the last thing I want them to be is like, I bought this. It doesn't fit me. And I now feel bad about myself or I'm going to throw it out. Oh, gosh. No, no. Yeah, most definitely. I do remember. I remember a situation. I've I've never had any garment flaw whatsoever in any Miyakota piece on that. I remember this from earlier. There was one time I felt so bad, so bad. The guilt at perhaps returning something makes me so upset because I'm like, what is this company going to do? What is this company going to do with this piece? Are they going to throw it away? Are they going to put it back in production? Like, what's going on? And I'll, I'll share the company because I think she is a wonderful human being. Kira Grace, she does, it is polyester-based, is is your traditional I know knit after Huh? 
Yoga wear. Yes, yoga wear. It is yoga wear. You, you, the Miyakota has some, some plant fibered yoga wear as well. Um, I am, it's in your more traditional sense, the polyester based um, yoga wear. But I messaged them and I said, hey, this seam is coming out. It was a serge seam too on the butt. So it's not like I could fix it myself. Um, and I messaged them. I said, out of curiosity, I'm wondering what you do with your returned defective garments because if I were to return this and I would be told that it would go into a landfill or something like that I would not want to return it but if if you would tell me that it would be put back it would be repaired and put back into production or donated or something like that then I would love to exchange this and she wrote back and she said I will pay for shipping send it to us we will repair it and send it back to you and I was like holy cow so I got the same piece And I could see the little spot didn't bother me at all. And they just surged over it. I don't know if she did it. I don't know if her factory did it or what. But there was shipping involved. But I got that piece back. It didn't go in the landfill. Yeah. Yep. They they repaired the piece for me. That makes me me feel really good because I've supported Kira Grace too. That was one of the... First, I was wearing Lululemon. And Uh then I was like, okay, I don't want to wear Lululemon. And my sister is a yoga teacher and she partnered with Cure Grace a few times and mm-hmm. she was like, I love this company and she was always wearing Cure Grace. So then I bought some Cure Grace and now I, I can't lie. I mostly wear Mia Coda. Oh, of course. Well, why would you not? But yeah, they're, but that's, that's really awesome. No, they're a great brand mm-hmm. and they're women owned, right? Yes, they are. They are women owned. They, they are US made. Yes. Ethically crafted. I have not, I've looked in their sustainability and all of it aligns. I've not asked the extra questions, but like she hosted a Saturday morning zoom yoga throughout the pandemic and had their Kira Grace warriors come on and teach. And she was on herself. So just like you are on your Instagram stories, it's nice when you can see the face of the brand and I feel like that is there's so much trust in that too, when you know who that. owns it, That's you why know I do who it, runs because it. I personally love it. Yes. Oh yes. Oh gosh, yes. No, it's you great. Know, there's totally like I don't like supporting. Well, even if I, like I like knowing who I'm shopping with. It's like a weird thing now that I'm a small business owner. I'm like I want to know your name. Yes. <laughs> like I don't want to just know like the company's name. I want to know your whole deal. Totally. But I don't. I think sometimes I'm like, am I oversharing so much about my personal life? But I'm like. As a consumer, I enjoy this type of stuff, but mm-hmm. I also enjoy watching like what I did today YouTube videos. So maybe sure. that's just me, but I enjoy it. Well, I found you. I found Mia Coda through Rian Wife Life on YouTube, and that's what I love about her is that she is so overly oh, I'm transparent. With her. I love her so much, and I saw in the stories you're doing a collab with her in the future, and I'm excited. I can't leak that, but yet. yes, yes. Let me tell you it's really good there was it there was a, it might be coming up soon so we don't know that's happening that's not happening guys we have no idea but <laughs> no idea. the fabric is shipping in july <sighs> so i already ordered the fabric and i'm hoping to have it july august september september october wow oh that'll be exciting. i'm really excited about it so fun oh she's lovely i so- love her such a wonderful human. She is. She is. Yes. Wife Life was one of my favorite. I think that's still what she's called on YouTube. I don't quite I, remember. I don't know if I'm YouTuber or not because I'm just subscribed to her channel so she comes up. I know she changed her name on Instagram to be Rianne H-Y. Yes. Rianne H-Y. R-H-I-A-N, I believe. Yes. Yeah. H-Y. Yes. She's Under- a lovely, lovely human. Underscore? It's Rianne underscore H-Y. There I we think. go. Thank you for that. Um. 
And it's so funny because you always see, like, of course, especially with, like, influencers and internet people, like, they're not going to come across as, like, a horrible person on the internet. So, like, these people, you're always like, oh, my God, I want to be their friend. They're so cool. I love watching them. And, like, having, like, personal dialogue with her, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, you're even better in person. (laughs) Like, how is that possible? I love this. I love this. Now, in today's age of marketing and selling and social media and influencing, because being an influencer is actually now a job title, having Mm -hmm. representation is extremely important to, I would hope, a lot of brands. Some brands don't seem to care that much about representation. Mia Coda does. And you even went through, (laughs) oh my gosh, (laughs) you went through an entire, we're going to call it a little bit of an overhaul last year with model representation in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the brutal murder of George Floyd here in the Midwest. That is the name that we would know the most because he was just north of us in Minneapolis um, with Brianna, with every every life that has been lost in the past several years to um, partially police brutality, partially white supremacy. You can pin it on a whole lot of things. But you saw a need for more representation in your models. And you took that bull by the horns and you went after it with color, with size, with ethnicity, with um, being in, you have a, you have several, I think I've seen several models in a wheelchair as well. What yeah. was, so I've just listed a couple of catalyst, possible catalysts for that. Why was that so important to you to be like, we're doing this and we're doing this all in? So this is partially a personal thing that like has to do with me and is very me centered in terms of like when I like, let's say like I used to shop at J. Crew all the time mm-hmm. and I used to buy my jeans from them and I thought it's funny because I don't know how to say this in like a congruent way, but okay, I'll start here. Do it. Um, <laughs> I thought Mia Coda was having very, like when I was picking models, I thought I was being very representative and inclusive, not necessarily with size. Cause we, well, when Mia Coda started, we had small, medium, large. Mm-hmm. Then everyone asked me for extra small. Let me just tell you selling an extra small is like selling water to a seal. (laughs) It's like impossible. Um, And then people, so I was like, if I'm going to do extra small, I'm going to do extra large. Mm -hmm. And then people were like, when are you going to be size inclusive? So I expanded to extra, extra large. And then I saw humans on the internet, influencers who I was like, oh my God, I'd love to work with them, but I don't make their size. And I was like, that's a problem. Red flag. And then the person who actually reached out to me, who did my fitting for four X pieces, uh, Suma Jane Dark, she, uh, they sent me a message on Instagram and they said, I'd love to wear your clothing, but it doesn't come in my size. And I was like, oh, yeah, like that's something I really want to work on. Thank you. Like, I appreciate you. And during COVID, I just had a lot of free time on my hands and a lot of time to think and ruminate and be like, where am I dropping the ball? Mm. And I messaged them and was like, hey, if I was to expand my size range, would you help me? I'd pay you. And they were like, yeah, I'm down. So that started that relationship. But back to the J. Crew thing is, I used to shop and buy my jeans at J. Crew back in college, and I've got a butt, I've got thighs, and I've got hips. I'm a relatively small person, so it's very societally 
accepted. Mm -hmm. So I can't be like, oh, what was me? I don't see myself represented. But definitely my Mia code of representation comes out of that what was me. Mm -hmm. Because I would buy boyfriend jeans from J. Crew. Let me tell you, they were always tight on me. And they were baggy on the model because they had skinny, long legs. They were probably six feet tall, size zero. And that's not me. Sure. I'm not short. I'm 5'6". But I do not have long, skinny legs. My leg, my lower body is where I carry most of my weight. Mm-hmm. So it was always, and it always made me feel bad about myself. And I'm like, if this is making me feel bad about myself, like, imagine the people whose bodies aren't represented ever. Mm-hmm. Like, who can't relate to, like, that at all. Like, imagine how they feel. And then I was like, oh, my God, I don't want them to feel as bad as I feel. Or worse. And, like, so it comes out of, like, not to throw myself under the rug but like comes out of a little bit of a selfish place but I think it's also a place of caring about how other people feel based on my feelings and being able to relate to them so actually when Black Lives Matter came to the forefront um I was looking it was right after I was about to book a photo shoot and I work with an amazing modeling agency called We Speak Models Mm -hmm. they have models in wheelchairs older models disabled models trans models plus size models Male models, non-binary models, female models, like you name it. I mean, I'm sure they're missing something, but like they've (laughs) they've got great representation. And let me just tell you, their models are really good. Mm -hmm. Like I have never worked, and I've worked with a lot of their models now. And I've never had one that I was like, ooh, wish I didn't hire them. Like they're incredible and so nice, like the nicest. So I was working with We Speak. And I was talking to the owner, Brianna, and she said, hey, one of our models is helping people be more, like, inclusive and racially diverse and to really, like, um, just, like, bring that awareness to brands. Her name's Quincy, and I've actually, she's one of our bike short models. She's mm. wearing the gray shorts. Okay. And I worked with her, and I paid her to do kind of like a inclusive dismantle white supremacy overhaul on Mia Coda because and she said to me, Yes, you've been using black models this whole time, but do you realize how white your black models look? Ooh. And I was like, No. Oops. <laughs> like hide under a rug. Like literally I thought that like I always was looking to book Asian and black and Middle Eastern and Indian and blah, 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 blah. like I always wanted that like but also, I was working with other modeling agencies, and I went back and looked at their boards and was like, where did I go wrong? Like, why did I think this model was more beautiful than another model? And I realized that the black-looking black models weren't there. Mm. Like, the, they were all light-skinned, had very European features, like, not, like, exactly what Quincy was calling me out for, and She's incredible. Not only is she an incredible human, she is an amazing model. Hmm. Um, but she, she, even she was like, like you can book me as a model, but like I still have white passing features and like work with like darker skinned black people, people with natural hair, like just the whole spectrum. And it really made me think like if I'm going to be including, um, more black looking black models and more diverse models. And at this time I was working on expanding my size range and having more body 
bodies represented. I've always been interested in representing multiple body sizes mm-hmm. ever since I had one photo shoot. And I thought I hired two models that were two different body sizes. And it was like extra small and small. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, I don't think that hit the nail on the head. So I think it's definitely really important as a brand owner to call yourself out. Because, like, I really thought I was doing a good job, but you know what? I wasn't. Sure. <laughs> and, like, I was trying. That's important. But, like, it's good to have when people do call you out. Like, one of the things I said is, what do you want to see represented? And a uh, really awesome human on Instagram was like, hey, I'm disabled, and I never see myself represented. And my dad's disabled. And I was like, how come I never thought, like, I mean, my dad, like, isn't the epitome of ethical consumer. I mean, he's disabled and he spends lots of time shopping on Amazon. But, like, we try to, like, he's like, oh, it was vegan. I'm like, good job, Dad. You tried. (laughs) But he is disabled. And I never thought about how people like him, especially, like, I see how people treat him different because of his disability. And I think that has to do a lot with disability not being represented and especially not being represented in a way that makes people see them for who they are beyond their disability. So I think that was, and someone said that to me. And if you looked at her, you would not know that she was disabled. And I worked with her and then I said, what other disability uh, advocates and disabled influencers do you want to see me work with? And I've worked with people like uh, Wheelchair Rapunzel, who is incredible, and Bree, who is a model for We Speak, and the disabled hippie, who is another really awesome human. And you see, like... I think it's important to see people as people across the whole body positivity, body representation, race representation, age representation, ability representation, but also to dismantle ableism, white supremacy, fat phobia, all that stuff. Like, I just, as a brand, you have a lot of responsibility. And even though I'm just one person, I don't want to contribute to any of that as a person or a brand. So. Hmm. That's my ramble on that. I loved every second. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, my goodness. Well, and like what Quincy was saying, too, you know, it's who do you want to see represented? How could you possibly have have picked more represented models when your model companies were not actually giving you different faces and different bodies either? So you you had that smaller selection. You said you went and looked at their board and you didn't find um, people of color with non-European features or that don't have white passing features. So it really speaks to what the modeling industry maybe needs to dismantle as well. And Quincy told me about that too. She said there's so many times like you can have like 20 white women identifying on a board mm-hmm. and they'll have like one person of color and be like, that's enough. Like we can't book that many people of color. Mm. Like, can you imagine? That's just, it's maddening to, to try to wrap my brain around a place like New York city that would be so diverse, that would have access to so many diverse looking enabled people that, that would still be a norm. I, I think that sometimes I consider the mid my my little sheltered Midwest upbringing, <laughs> you know. But I wouldn't figure that in New York or Chicago. You would figure that with the larger demographics and different varieties of people and race and whatnot, you would find in a big city that that wouldn't be the case. But it's still the case everywhere. The other thing is, I look back on like I always was using like 
plus size. They're like an extra large or extra, extra large model because that was what the size that my brand went up to at the time. Mm -hmm. But I look back at these model boards and like people were like, I wish you'd have plus size models. I'm like, she is plus size. Mm -hmm. And realized they all have flat stomachs and they all have hourglass bodies. Got you. How is that representative? Sure. What's, was it, who is it? Ashley Graham being like the first plus size model but she considered the first plus size model to make it like bigger on the cover of sports illustrated the swimsuit edition i think and she is tall and she is broad and she is the conventionally curvy hourglassy like you said Mm -hmm. but it's not actually the representation for the plus size population most like literally when i look at ashley graham i'm like how are you plus size no no now that the mid-sized movement is out i feel like maybe there's more of an understanding this whole the i think it's more of a social media movement than anything but the mid-size, the one that's like, I'm not skinny, I'm not tiny, but like, I don't shop in plus it's size either. <laughs> oh man, TikTok, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It's just crazy, man. But you are, you have considered all of the things once they've been brought to your attention, which I think is so admirable because clearly other companies have had this brought to their attention and they have done nothing. So I, I really wish they would. And I would I would hope that people continue to ask better of the companies that they are shopping with and supporting. But I think it, it does boil down to it being it being an industry problem as well. But consumers oh, have huge problem. Yeah. Consumers and businesses both have a responsibility and the capability to do a lot and at least ask for more. But ultimately, yeah, the industry, a little dismantling going on in the industry is You've also brought up a really important point about consumers asking, Mm because I got asked all the time, and it kind of annoyed me to be completely transparent, is every time I had a photo shoot, even with like an extra extra large model, like Mm -hmm. a 2XL, everyone asked me, when are you explaining to plus sizes? Mm -hmm. And like, I just, first of all, it was expensive. I'm not going to lie. It was very expensive. It's still very expensive for me to do, but it is a zillion percent worth it. Like Mm -hmm. to any small brand who's like, I understand when I started, I had no budget and I still work with like a very small budget. And like, I'm always worried about money and is this going to be worthwhile and is this going to be cost effective? And it is so worth it, not only to be that person who makes people feel included in a movement that they want to be included in. Like there are so many plus size people who want to shop ethically, but also to just like, not only to offer to them, but to expand that, just, just, dismantle the stuff <laughs> i don't even know how to it. <laughs> but um and it, it's worth it like still to this day i'm still trying to i mean i can't really talk because i just launched 3x and 4x and i know it goes beyond that the problem is is that like i did a poll and i was like do we carry your size and one person said no and i'm like i need to reach more people who say no in order to be able to expand to 5x 6x I know if I do, I could, but I'm trying to, you know, it's like baby steps. And yes. I know that I am not completely size inclusive because not every person on the planet can wear my brand. Mm-hmm. But like I'm working there and 4Xs still don't sell that well for me. But 3X is one of our best sellers mm-hmm. now. That's awesome. And it's only been a few months and I've only worked with a few plus size influencers. So there's so much more room for growth there. And if people keep, if I keep getting people saying, you don't make my size, I am going to expand because as much as like, especially as a brand owner, when you're trying to do your best, 
and people keep telling you it's not good enough, especially as a sensitive, overly thin-skinned human being. You're like, ah, and you just want to cry in a puddle. <laughs> but, like, you kind of have to be, like, listening. Sure. Because if you're not listening, you're not meeting a demand. Mm-hmm. And you're not serving the folks that would like to be shopping with you either. But then, yes, there's, of course, the delicate balance of business and being able to stay in production. And if you are making 5X and 6X sizes before you have 5X and 6X clientele, thankfully, you have classic pieces that are never going to go out of style. But that's also fabric that is sitting on the shelf and hopefully not, but potentially sitting there not going anywhere or being made into, you know, a thousand scrunchies as you do with your fabric samples. I see your cat scrunchie on your wrist, but yeah, it's businesses have the supply and demand difficulty, but you've done the wonderful thing of asking, do I make your size? Okay, now I will. And it's, yeah, it's, it's proof that businesses can strike that balance of, oh, it's expensive or, oh, well, I don't have any people that shop with me that want that size. Well, that's because you don't offer it. So that's what really like infuriates me is that these big brands have so much money. I mean, you're throwing out your returns for me, throwing out a return means like I'm throwing out like a significant, it's like throwing money in the trash. You Mm -hmm. might as well just make a fire pit with like $20 bill. Yep. But like, these brands have so much money. And I think if I can do this with such a small budget, like it's literally just me on the team. My payroll is me. And like, if I can't pay, if I want to pay other people and put paying me off, like sometimes I'll make a note, like me, a code owes you this much money. Mm-hmm. And then when I, like I put myself on the back burner to pay people who need, like who I need. And like if brands who have huge budget that they could be paying their CEOs millions of dollars, paying everyone tons of money but their garment workers nothing i mean whatever um Mm. but they can't expand their size range like i i just don't get it it like and like they can't do better like i'm just like you have the budget like this is nothing to you like cut your ceo's budget by a million dollars pay them like 10 million dollars instead of 15 million dollars and like do a little better as a brand (laughs) and like consumers are asking for it like I see but like the problem is is that there are so many fast fashion retailers um like Fashion Nova Mm -hmm. that do plus size and that's why I never get mad at seeing the influencers that I want to work with working with Fashion Nova and other companies like that I'm like because they're meeting a demand but like Mm -hmm. they need to meet some other demands like paying their workers (laughs) a fair wage but also also you find out that they're also sometimes doing their influencers dirty too I'm like, I just, I can't understand how brands with big budgets don't prioritize the people that they work with who literally make their brand. Sure. Most definitely. Mm. That's why you are special. And that's why you do the good things. And that's why we love you. (laughs) I love you back. (laughs) Now I have one more question for you, my dear, because we have, this is a, this is a long podcast. Thanks for sticking with us guys. But this is all of these. So (laughs) thank you guys. I can ramble forever. Oh, it's so important, though, and this is why I, I, I like to have – I had um, a skincare company on. You would love this, actually. Boonie Dune. I will send this to you on the Instagrams. Um, yes, I had skincare on. I have had you on now. Um, public policy on plastic recycling policy. 
I think it, it, it goes beyond just talking about, you know, the food and beverage industry that we usually would. These are things that we don't get to see. These are things that we don't get to hear about. So I think every part of this episode has been so important. I'm so thankful. But if you could go back to, you said you were 21 when you started Miyakota? 22. 22. If you could go back to 22-year-old Julia, what advice would you give her? Business advice or... Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, I guess it would be business advice too. I have a couple of things. My first one would be trust your gut mm-hmm. because I have made very expensive mistakes. That's why a lot of people who are starting small brands, I'm always like willing to give them advice mm-hmm. because I've made very, very expensive mistakes, including trusting someone who did not have my back and paying them more money than I've ever paid myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they were going to bring my brand in front of a larger audience and up level it and they helped me a little bit, but then really like misguided me. And I kept feeling like there was something wrong and everyone kept telling me there was something wrong here. And like cut the cord. And I just was like, no, they told me that big things are around the corner and like me and going to make it. Mm-hmm. And like, I was just so anxious about my company at that time that like, I thought that was like what I had to do. But like my gut was telling me this isn't good. This isn't good. And I should have listened to that feeling. And I've had feelings many times. Like one of my things is when, uh, Suma wrote to me saying, hey, I'd love to wear your clothing. My gut said, you really need to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And I trusted my gut and was like, hey, like within like a, a week, maybe I was like, hey, do you want to help me with this? And when they said yes, I was like, and it benefited me. Yeah. But I think trust your gut. Is, I mean, to everyone, business owner, not business owner, it is so important to be in tune with yourself and what you need and what if you're a business owner, your company needs. And then what I would say to Mia Coda is probably, well, I wish I could tell, I, I wish I could tell 22 year old Julia a lot of things like be the brand that like just to be more educated and to be the brand that you really want to be and who's going to make you feel good and other people feel good. And I think I was always trying to do that, but not always hitting the mark. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I'm probably, I'll probably look back on Mia Coda now in like 10 years and be like, wow, I thought I was so inclusive and so this, <laughs> so that. And I'll be like, wow, I was really missing the mark. But like, you can only do as well as you know in that time. So I think not to be so anxious about Mia Coda, I could probably tell that to myself now too. Because as a business owner, like I've set up some boundaries, but like if you've ever gotten an email back from me at two o'clock in the morning because I woke up to pee and checked my phone because I'm <laughs> crazy. And sent you back an email at that moment because I was afraid to wait because I felt like I had to respond to you immediately. Like, just don't be so anxious. <laughs> <laughs> Easier said than done, and that's why we practice yoga. Oh, exactly. My goodness. Excellent. Do you have any last words of advice or encouragement for maybe designers in the fashion industry that are looking to be more sustainable or inclusive? or anything at all it's worth it 110 zillion percent Mm -hmm. like i was always so worried about doing so many things because i was afraid that it wouldn't be worth it for my business and it's been i mean the personal gratification that i get out of it on top of the positive response i get out of it on top of the actually converting to sales 
it's so worth it. And I spoke to brands like Free Label and Sotella before I expanded my size range. Mm-hmm. And they're both ethical and sustainable brands that I personally own from and have spoken to both of the owners and they are incredible. Um, but I spoke to both of them and they're like, oh, it's worth it. And like, that was a big jump for me, but I think it still took me like another, like maybe six months, but it's definitely worth it. And being sustainable is imperative. And not only is it trendy, but it's necessary. And especially with the Gen Z generation being more interested in it, it's people want it. I mean, not only do they need it, even if they don't know they need it, like they're starting to want it. So it's definitely something to like hop on. And to educate yourself about until you're so passionate about it that like you're like, how could I ever make any other choice? Hmm. I love that. Beautiful. Thank you, Gen Z. I feel like they're going to do some really (laughs) good stuff. I like to think us millennials kind of got the ball rolling, but Gen Z is here to finish what we started. They really are. Boy, it'll be good. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much so much for spending time coming on the podcast and talking about Mia Coda and just the ins and out of the fashion industry as far as ethical manufacturing and sourcing and inclusivity when modeling. It's been such an informative conversation for me and I feel like I have taken some deep dives into what goes on behind the scenes and I still learned so many new things and just had things reinforced with your imagery of going to the factories and things like that. So thank you so, so much. This has been so wonderful. Yay. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me and sharing with your community. And this has been so fun. Yay. Now tell our listeners where they can find you on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the, all the places. Okay. So everything is Mia Coda, New York, M I A K O D A New York spelled out. Um, and our website is miacodanewyork.com. Our Instagram is miacodanewyork. If you want more of my personal life, miacoda mood board. And I guess we, oh, TikTok. Yes. <laughs> miacoda New York. <laughs> I, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to be a Gen Zer. And, it's um, hard to be a Gen Zer, especially if you're like so, somewhat social media resistant. Like I feel like we both are, <laughs> or at least no, Facebook really resistant. Difficult. Yeah. Facebook resistant 100%, but I feel like Facebook has really, like, my mom's generation really loves Facebook, (laughs) Um, but Facebook, Mia Coda, Mia Coda New York, I think, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I just automatically have my Instagram post to Twitter and Facebook, I try to check it every so often, so that, like, if someone sends me a message, I'm on top of it, but, like, you know, follow us on Instagram, follow us on TikTok if you're there, and definitely our website. (laughs) And we will be tagging everything in the show notes and in the episode description. So, guys, you can go to the description and click all of the links depending on what site you are. If you use Facebook, the Facebook will be linked. So, we will <laughs> hopefully you. hear more of you soon. I'm excited for my joggers to come, or in the, not the joggers, I have the joggers. Excited for my bike shorts, and I'm excited for all the releases Hi. and the collabs coming up. So, we will keep track of you and keep our listeners updated on all the exciting things. So, Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners. And I hope you all tune in next time.